If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the Lisk podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mopac Audio. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Lisk Long Island Serial Killer. Today, we are talking with Sheriff Errol Toulon of Suffolk County. He oversees both jails, 900 plus inmates. Uh, that's just one of his duties. And he is responsible for Rex Hewerman's incarceration, safety, and transport to any outside appointments he might have, such as court or doctors or whatever. But we also talked about the anti-trafficking task force that he started back in 2018 and how they are addressing the problems of sex work and making it safer and better for those in this world. Thanks for getting getting with us this morning. How's Long Island doing? Uh, we're actually doing pretty good. I mean, the weather's uh, beautiful as we approach September and the fall. You know, everything is uh, going very well here. I think you were you were born in the area of like Bronx or Brooklyn. Where were you? Where did you grow up? So I, I was born in the Bronx, and my dad was a warden on Rikers Island. Uh, that's how he retired. But uh, when I was a young man, you know, I saw him uh, always leaving our house in, in in his uniform at times. And then when I became old enough, and I realized that I wasn't going to be a baseball player, uh, he had insisted that I take a few civil service tests. And I was actually getting ready to go into the New York City Police Transit Academy in August of 1982 when um, New York City Department of Corrections called me. And I uh, asked my dad, and he said, if I go to corrections, at least I know who the bad guys are. <laughs> so that's how I wound up uh, uh, working on with the New York City Department of Corrections. 
So, and then your dad was at, you know, did Rikers, worked at Rikers, and then you went out there as well. Correct. I, I did 22 years on the uniform side, retiring as a captain because of the pancreatic cancer issues, and then returned back eight years, I believe it was eight years later as the deputy commissioner of operations, where I worked for almost three years. Is your sheriff's position with SCPD, is that, that's an elected position, is that correct? So the sheriff's office is a, a separate organization from the Suffolk County Police Department, but yes, the uh, sheriff of Suffolk County is an elected position. Okay, okay. Yeah, can you explain the differences between, you know, SCPD police? I've heard that the sheriff's department is different, you know, and I know with sheriff's departments, it seems all around the country, it, it can have a different flavor to it. Is that correct? Yes. So, you know, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office was created in 1683, and I tell many people it's before America was even America. And, um, you know, very responsibilities were in that, in that early or late 1600s uh, from the uh, Queen or King of England really de designating the responsibilities. In 1960, Suffolk County created the Suffolk County Police Department uh, to really respond to 911 calls and be the police agency uh, for the five western towns in Suffolk County. But, you know, Suffolk County is very unusual because uh, the eastern towns also had their own police department. The Suffolk County Sheriff is the highest ranking law enforcement person in Suffolk County. Not only, not only overseeing the two jails in Riverhead and Yaphank, with about 900 correction officers, but 250 deputy sheriffs who are sworn police officers that uh, not only patrol uh, parts of the roadways in Suffolk County, uh, we have a Marine Bureau, we have a Domestic Violence Bureau, we have a Civil Bureau that does uh, evictions. We also do ERPOs, which are extremist protection orders or the red flag laws. Uh, deputy sheriffs transports. Uh, incarcerated individuals back and forth to court and also will um, monitor them in court till they see a judge. Wow. Okay. I didn't know it was that involved. You know, congratulations. You know, I've been following this case for a long time and as I'm sure you have, and you know, you kind of think, well, we'd love to see it solved. We doubt it ever happens. So congratulations. I mean, you guys have done some amazing work and we're so happy that, you know, obviously it's all alleged. We know that, but um, that, you know, this is moving along. Let me ask you this. How confident, if you had to put a percentage on it, that y'all have the right man? So I feel 100% confident in um, the work that the task force, the district attorney, the police commissioner, FBI, and the New York State Police, including the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, that we have the right person in the three crimes that he is currently accused or alleged to have committed. That is great. Um, yeah, because, you know, when I read through the, the booking doc and some, you know, some of the different docs that we've seen, the evidence seems very strong. I know there's a whole case and Tierney's, you know, they're all working on that as you are too. Um, but it does seem very strong. And, and so we are excited about that. Let me ask you this back in like 2011, 2012, when, you know, all of this kicked off, where were you at that time? Were you in Rikers or not in Rikers? Were you at Rikers or what were you doing back then? So in, in actually 2012, I started working with County Executive Ballone as his, uh, Assistant Deputy County Executive for Public Safety. Uh, I worked there for almost two years before I returned back to New York City as the uh, Deputy Commissioner of Operations. Okay. You know, back then, what was your view as, you know, Spoda came on and Burke took over? And 
I don't know how much you heard about the mix-up and the shake-up of, you know, moving out the old detectives and bringing in the new regime and all that. Did you have an opinion back then on what was going on, or was that more behind the scenes and you didn't know much about it? No, I, I did know, but, you know, one of the things about when new administrations come in, uh, whether it's governmental or law enforcement, sometimes if there's a new set of eyes on an issue or a problem, whether it's uh, problems internally or crimes that are being committed, you know, that um, appointing authority does sometimes want to uh, bring in their own people, bring in a new fresh set of eyes to look at a potential problem. So, you know, it wasn't anything from my, my experience in law enforcement to say, you know, this is very unusual. Um, I didn't know the key players that were actually part of the investigation. So I don't know um, why anyone was moved, but it doesn't seem uh, unusual for that to occur. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, and we had talked to uh, the former head of detectives at one time, and he had talked about that, you know, there wasn't the handover of, you know, the, the transferring of knowledge, institutional knowledge, case knowledge, which was not good. Um, but let me ask you this, like, you know, with your history in, with law enforcement, is there a reason with a case like this why you would not want to have the FBI involved and have you worked with them before? I mean, I know there's always, you know, jurisdictional issues and sometimes egos involved, but on a case like this, what would be your approach with the FBI and their involvement? You know, I, I think I would have taken a similar approach to the district attorney and the police commissioner and bringing in all potential or possible resources that you can have to really um, not only solve a case, but bring justice to the victims and their families. And more importantly, you know, this individual has been in our community for approximately 13 years, and there was a, a lot of uh, uneasiness with many people in our community. And so from my perspective and, and my experience, I would bring in and welcome anybody that could help me do my job better, whether it's solving a case or giving me advice on, on different things that we're doing. And, you know, the only way you're going to solve or um, really get our work done in law enforcement is to really collaborate because not everybody has the same uh, resources. We all have different resources looking at it from different perspectives. And if you look at the five organizations that are part of the task force, you realize that there's, you know you have a federal, you have a state, and then you have three local. You have the district attorney, you have the police department, and you have the sheriff's department. You know, and uh, all of us making uh, either major or minor contributions to uh, the, the goal of the task force. That's a great point. Can you explain a little bit when Rex is brought in? Can you walk us through that? How does that work? Like, you know, can you walk through each of those steps of like when they brought him in? When did they talk to him? What does intake look like? You know, with you running two jails in one of the biggest counties in the country, it's probably every day to you. But could you just set it out for an audience that doesn't know how that works? Sure. So, you know, our involvement started at the arraignment when Mr. Huerman was arraigned and then transferred or remanded to the custody of the sheriff's office, where we then took custody of him uh, while he awaits his trial. When an individual comes into our custody, we're going to ask him or her uh, questions, uh, not necessarily about the case, but, you know, just to verify, one, that the person that we're taking into our custody is the, the correct person. Uh, because of the paperwork that we have, um, they're going to see um, medical. If there's, uh, if need be, mental health staff. Uh, of course, with Mr. Human, he was seen immediately by mental health staff. You know, all 
So for uh, you know for jail records, we're going to provide him with um, institutional uh, sheets uh, because he was put on suicide watch uh, by our mental health staff. He was given a suicide garment. Um, we then, uh, because he, of course he came in with nothing, we had to give him not only sheets, blanket, cup, toilet paper, a toothpaste, and then, um, you know, escorted him down to his housing area. He is searched through a scanner to make sure that he has no contraband. Uh, there are individuals that not only may have contraband uh, secreted in sometimes their clothing, but also sometimes secreted in their body cavity. And so, um, you know, we just want to ensure that no contraband is coming into our facility. He's then uh, escorted uh, to his housing area, locked in his cell. Um, he was briefed by some of my higher-ranking staff on jail and the processes that occur inside of a facility, when things will occur, different services that he could attend, and um, if he had any issues or he needed anything, to speak to the correction officers that are on post or a supervisor when he or she made their tour to alert them and we would try uh, you know, to work through the issues like we would anyone else that's incarcerated in our facility. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot? I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you? And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it you'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. I really appreciate you doing this because it is, you know, it is one of those that I think, you know, like some people find me working in podcasts and TV like super exciting. And I know for me, it's like, eh, you know, the day by day is not the, not as fun as it seems, you know, all the time. 
So a lot of times you're like, well, it's just, you know, you check them in and that's how it works. But I think these, these steps are really fascinating to see what that looks like because by the grace of God, most of us have never been in that position. Grace of God and good decision-making, I would say. But, yes. <laughs> but let me ask you this. You said when, when, when he sees the mental health professional, what does that look like? So, you know, correction staff are not mental health providers, and we can't determine if someone has some mental instability and may need some sort of treatment, medical issues. And so they will, you know, go through their evaluation, and I'm not familiar with what their evaluation is, but they will do an evaluation to determine whether someone does have some suicidal ideations or not. You know, sometimes they may just leave him or her on a suicide watch uh, to determine over a course of time whether that uh, label can be removed or should it stay on an individual. And then you said, you know, if they're if they're put on suicide watch, they have a, a suicide garment. And I kind of know what that means, or I can kind of, you know, context clues put that together, but could you explain exactly what that entails? I, I guess the best way to explain it is under normal circumstances, a person would be issued, um, you know, pants, um, you know, a top, uh, they have shoelaces, uh, they would have a belt. With the suicide garment, none of those issues, none of those things uh, happen. So it's more of a, a secure type of garment that an individual cannot use to, um, you know, potentially hang themselves or cause any harm. And so, you know, that garment is really determined by the mental health staff. Sure, sure. And then once he's all checked in, I imagine he's on his own. Is he in his own cell or is he sharing a cell or what does that look like? So all cells in, our, in both of our facilities are single occupancy cells. They're 60 square feet with a bunk, a mattress, a shelf, toilet, and sink, and a mirror that's uh, more of a plastic uh, material. So he's in a cell by himself like everybody else is, and you know, it's just uh, the way these uh, cells are designed in New York State. And so 60 square feet, so it's probably about, I guess, a 6 by 10, something like that. Right, close, 6 by 9, close to that. Sure, sure. And then what, is the, what does a day look like for, you know, someone who's in your one of your institutions there, one of your jails? What's, what's the average day look like, breakfast and lunch and, and free time and all that? Generally, if a person does not have a court case, they can wake up anywhere between 6 and 7 o'clock when breakfast is served. Of course, if they have a court date and they have to be produced that day, they may receive breakfast a little earlier so that they can be produced on time to the court. So if they do not have a court case, they then, uh, you know, will wake up, they will eat breakfast, um, they can go back to sleep uh, if they want. When it's time for uh, recreation or any other services, they will be called. Because we have over 900 people incarcerated in our facilities, the times vary when someone will be uh, escorted, whether it's him or uh, any housing area that's being taken to um, or recreation or any other service that's being provided would vary. Uh, more importantly, I think when um, you know Mr. Sherman has to go to any type of uh, service, whether it's uh, medical, whether it's uh, religious services, whether it's recreation or even the law library, or even to our rehabilitation to um, to see what what potential uh, things are being offered on that particular day. We do not have any other movement in our facility uh, when he's moving. We escort him by himself, and we stop all movement until he arrives at the uh, location he's supposed to be in. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. And 
when you do transfer him to like a court for a hearing or whatever, basically you stop all movement at the jail. He has a, a detail escort that takes him to a van, I guess. So we have staff that are, are trained to transport him to the location he has to move to. And so it really is a seamless uh, operation when it comes to that. The planning for Mr. Huberman, once we knew he was arrested and knew we were, he was coming into our custody, was very detailed on every aspect that we could think of from uh, being correction professionals as to what we could possibly anticipate. And I, I think most issues are, are covered. And let me ask you this, since you know I've been tracking you and in, in your work, and since we wanted to talk to you and from now today Burke was caught you know was arrested did you have any thoughts on Burke's arrest I know I don't know if you can speak to it but yeah that just happened what last week I guess right you know really no thoughts because um you know when I heard he was arrested the first my first thoughts were well what's the charge because depending on that charge there's a possibility he's going to be incarcerated in my uh, facility but when I heard the charge and I figured that, you know, the, the likelihood of him being incarcerated was very slim. Uh, there was not much of a concern on my part. Yeah. And as far as Rex, how has, how has he been, you know, what's his mood, you know, at the jail? Um, how have the interactions been? You know, where, where is he at, would you say? I, I would say he's like anyone else that's uh, newly incarcerated, especially someone that's never been. Uh, you know, had any dealings with the law. Uh, you know, there was a, a little bit of, um, a lot of sleeping in the very beginning, but I, I do believe that he's uh, acclimated in acceptance of where he's at right now and that, um, you know, he's been fully compliant with our staff and um, really has given us no issues. Okay. And then is there been, as far as your work, and you said between the two facilities, you oversee about 900 prisoners. Is that right? So we, we had 926 as of this morning in, in two facilities. Our Riverhead facility is more of a maximum security, and our Yatpank facility is more of a minimum uh, security uh, jail. They're not prisons, they're jails, because everyone here is either awaiting trial or has been sentenced to a year or less. If they get sentenced to a year or more, they would then go to state prison. I see. And are you living in Long Island these days? I, I imagine you are. Are you North Shore or South Shore? Oh, no, I'm a, a North Shore Long Islander. Okay. Yeah, that's the, I know people say like that South Shore is weird. You got to stay North Shore and like uh, <laughs> Port Jeff is, uh, you know, when I, we were up there with the, with the podcast and the show, I really, man, I, uh, I fell in, as weird as Long Island can be, no offense. I really, man, that North Shore is so pretty in Port Jeff. And we took the ferry over to Connecticut to see one of the families. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful area. Oh, yes, it is. I'm very fortunate. Have you been in your workings, have you dealt with any other jurisdictions as far as where, you know, like Las Vegas or South Carolina and where Rex's, you know, potential crimes could have gone? Have you, have you dealt with them or is that with the task force? So it's primarily the task force. The sheriff's office involvement is uh, we developed a correction intelligence center and we work with um, jails and prisons throughout the United States, specifically on jail intelligence. We also have uh, the first human trafficking unit in any jail prison in the United States. And the unique thing about our human trafficking unit, which we established 
in the fall of 2018 is the fact that our the sergeant, female sergeant, and two female correction officers work primarily uh, with sex trafficking uh, individuals that are coming into our custody. And what's unique about what we can do is when a sex trafficker or someone that's been trafficked has um, a sex worker or someone that's been trafficked uh, has been arrested, they're with the police department for only one, two, maybe three hours. And then they transfer, you know, they go to court, and if they're remanded to the correctional facility or to the sheriff's office in Suffolk County, our staff, over a period of time, whether it's days, weeks, or months, has the opportunity to interview these women and see, one, how can we help them with this issue that they're in, and two, who are the individuals that have been trafficking them so that we can work with our law enforcement partners to go after him or her and arrest them. And so this was created in 2018. And so those two units specifically with the task force has been working with other jurisdictions because we've learned how to gain intelligence and interview people to see if there's something that Mr. Huerman may have been involved or any other individual with any other crimes that are being committed in our community. Well, I want to, for what it's worth, commend you on this task force. That sounds like a very needed and long overdue institution to help go after you know the ones that are trafficking and people that are committing violence obviously like uh like a rex allegedly tell us a little bit more about this anti-trafficking program and how many people have you talked to and what services can you provide and, and different things as it as it's come together and ha- have you been contacted by other law enforcement agencies to say, hey, how do we do this? So, very interesting question. So, you know, I, I met with our federal partners in early of 2018 when I first became sheriff, really to talk about gang-related issues here in Suffolk County. And one of them said to me, you know, we're more concerned about human trafficking on Long Island than uh, gang-related issues. And so, you know, when I was talking to my staff and, you know, we were just starting to recreate or create an intelligence unit here in the sheriff's office because we didn't have really a a formal uh, intelligence unit. So what we wanted to do was create this human trafficking unit, identify some staff that have been really good at speaking to our female population because we wanted individuals that can gain the trust of these women, and, and more importantly, start to understand and identify the different circumstances that are in and what caused them to be there. More importantly, who are these women? Uh, where do they come from? Uh, do they have children? What's their educational level? What caused them to get involved in this? Or, you know, how were they forced into this? Or things that, you know, we wanted to learn. And so we've been extremely successful since 2018. We have interviewed over 5,100 uh, women who've been incarcerated with a little over 300 victims and over 190 individuals that are traffickers. Uh, we've been able to uh, coordinate. Ironically, 36% of the traffickers are gang-related, yet 6% of the women, uh, the sex workers, are gang-related. We've made 700 referrals to whether it's the police department or any social service or uh, service providers in our community to assist these women with with these issues, especially those that want to get out and unfortunately are forced either to stay in because of whatever reason uh, their relationship with the, uh, the person that's um, trafficking them or their uh, substance abuse issues, their mental health issues, their reliance on money to support their family or, 
or different things that they're confronted with. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Given that you've now gotten five years into this, what sounds like a great program, you know, this this trafficking uh, task force, anti-trafficking task force, what would you, if someone came to you and, you know, some federal agency said, hey, we want to give you whatever you need, what would be the first thing you'd ask for? Like, what would, what would be that next step that you'd like to take if the funds and the resources were there? I, I think the first thing I would ask for is probably... Um better technology to create a more comprehensive database. You know, I, I think it would enable us to connect a lot more dots. Uh, Suffolk County is a big place, and one unique thing about the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, you know, when you asked me earlier about the Suffolk County Police Department, I told you that they have the five western towns, that's what they oversee and they respond to in Suffolk County, where every single person that's incarcerated in Suffolk County, if they're remanded, they're coming to the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. So whether they're on the, arrested on the east end of Long Island or the west end of Long Island, we have that opportunity to, to bring all the pieces of the puzzle. And because of our now relationships with Nassau County, New York City, um, sheriff's offices throughout the country from Texas to Florida to California, Nevada, Chicago, Delaware, Virginia, South Carolina, uh, Minnesota, We've been able to really start to learn uh, about different things that are occurring in other parts of the country. But more importantly, how can we keep our community safe? That's awesome. That is really good. Let me, this is going back here a second, but you said the sheriff's department for your area of Long Island, which probably wasn't even called Suffolk County back then, was founded in 1683? Right. The sheriff's office uh, started in 1683. That's their origin. It's got to be one of the first sheriff's offices in the country. I, I think there was one, I think, further west that's actually, uh, I think we're number three. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't believe we're number one, but we are one of the oldest. That is fascinating. And then with this anti-trafficking and Rex, can you talk about some of those connections? Because obviously you've probably you know, increase some of your interviews with sex workers that they've come in. I mean, we know you have just with because of the Rex situation. What have you learned through that? And um, what has been uh, eye-opening to you as you've talked to these sex workers who might have had interactions with them? You know, I, I think when any individual has said that they've had some sort of connection with Rex, first of all, we take all of them very seriously. But more importantly, you know, we want to make sure that there's some validity to their story. And so, you know, anyone that may have said that they had any interaction with him, you know, we then present to the task force to really see if someone has um, actually had some interaction in their story. You know, we didn't have anyone really prior to his arrest uh, because we were asking questions about Gilgo or things that we knew either from the media or through our law enforcement partners before this task force was created in February, March of 2022. So, you know, we want to make sure that everybody that says that they had some interaction, what they're saying is uh, taken seriously, but more importantly, that we can validate what they're saying. 
And then um, let me ask you this. So as far as Rex, is he allowed visitors? Um, how does that work? Has he had any? And what would it take for us to come visit him if, if that were possible? So anyone can visit, uh, well, I should say anyone can register to visit a person that's in our custody. Uh, the person uh, that's incarcerated does have the option to accept or decline that visit. And so um, that's how the process works here. Uh, Mr. Hureman has had uh, several visits from his attorney and one other individual, I guess, known to him. Okay. All right. So I always ask this one, especially for you, because, you know, this, as much as I try to keep up with your world, obviously there's so much, but is there anything that we've missed that I should have asked that uh, that we need to talk about? No, you know, I, I think the, the one thing I really try to emphasize is the work of the uh, anti-trafficking unit and our correction intelligence unit in gathering intelligence um, that really helps keep not only the jails or prisons safe, but also um, our community safe. And I, I think that the work that they're doing, um, you know, specifically, you know, not only with this, uh, you know, the Gilgo Beach serial killing and uh, the arrest of Red Sherman, but more importantly with other crimes that may not go as published in newspapers or other social media or TV that people may not hear about, that they're working extremely hard uh, to keep our community safe. Well, I want to thank you, honestly, for the work you do. No, thank you very much. And, and yes, uh, you know, tomorrow I, start, I started my career 41 years ago, tomorrow, and I can tell you I'm even more passionate than when I was a young correctional officer on Rikers Island. Well, congratulations on that. And thank you so much for taking the time with us. We're, again, we're grateful for the work and grateful for the time you spent with us. And we just hope that anti-trafficking task force just keeps growing and, and really working on that problem. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate you uh, giving me this opportunity. Oh, thank you, Sheriff. Um, you have a good day and thanks again. Thank you. Have you a bet. great day. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. And a special thanks to Sheriff Errol Toulon for taking the time with us and helping us understand what that world looks like uh, of Rex's incarceration and especially the work they're doing with the Anti-Trafficking Task Force. And we are getting requests for more and more episodes and we want to put those out as much as we're able and we're working hard on new episodes that are coming out even next week. But in line with our previous work, we're doing our best to make sure that these episodes have topics and guests that are meaningful, that are based in fact, or that have a unique point of view that adds or moves you know, the Lisk story forward. If you're enjoying these episodes of Lisk, please rate and review, tell a friend. Uh, it really helps us get out there. And so we rely on you and thank you for the role you play in that. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beal and Jonathan Nowazarden, and music by Blake Maples. The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.